Nugent. I'm a professor at Olin College, and I study asteroids. I have a pretty cool job, and one of my favorite parts is getting to meet all the interesting people who spend their days exploring space. Each week, I'll introduce you to one of these smart folks and ask them to tell us about their corner of the cosmos. Today's guest is Dr. Diana Blaney, who is the principal investigator for the Mapping Imaging Spectrometer for Europa Clipper at the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory, Caltech, in Pasadena, California. Welcome to the show. Hi, Carrie. Thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to this. Me too. This is going to be great. We are recording on August 4th in 2023, and I got an iced pistachio latte from Tate, which is our local bougie coffee place. I don't know what a pistachio latte is, but I will find out. What are you drinking? <laughs> and I got my old standby, a Diet Coke. I've Very been nice. Doing a Diet Coke every time I sit down on my computer in the morning since grad school, and I found out I couldn't drink coffee. <laughs> I needed caffeine. That's amazing. So this is like your everyday go-to is a Diet Coke. It's an everyday go-to is a Diet Coke. I love it. Okay, I'm going to try this weird drink. We'll see how it goes. Well, this one's a lot. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of gritty, which I think is the pistachios, but you don't expect a coffee to be gritty. And it's like very icing sweet. It's not Uh, bad, but it's like, it's a thing. (laughs) So now that we are drinking our respective drinks, we're going to talk about Europa Clipper. And some listeners might be familiar with Europa Clipper already, but for those who are not, This is a new spacecraft currently being built. Can you tell us where it's headed? So it's headed to Jupiter's moon Europa, and it's what's called one of the Galilean satellites. It's an icy moon that has a ice crust that's maybe up to 100 kilometers thick, but underneath there's a liquid water ocean. And we're going to go out there and fly by a bunch of times and Try to figure out if that ocean is habitable and able to support life. What a question. (laughs) (laughs) I know this is like your everyday job, but you're like, we're just going to see if this could support life. Cool beans. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, we're not going to be able to actually get to the ocean itself because it's through this really thick crust. But there may be times where there are the water from the ocean goes up through the crust in geysers or chaos forming events, crust will melt through. And regardless, that ice on the surface is related to what's going on with the ocean. There's a lot of color and cracks and stuff. So we should be able to get a really good handle on what's going on inside Europa, even if we can't actually go into the ocean itself. So just kind of as a recap for those who aren't super familiar with Europa already, Europa's got this thick crust layer. Underneath it is an ocean. That ocean seems to have all the elements for life, but we're not quite sure. We'd like to know more. This mission, as you said, won't be able to see in the ocean. There's no kind of expectations of a direct detection of life, but it's looking again to look a little more closely to see if all the elements of life are there and what you can possibly learn about the ocean beneath. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. And the instrument that I'm involved with is called MISE, Mapping Imaging Spectrometer for Europa. And we're basically going to be looking on the surface to see if we see evidence of things like organics from the ocean, salts from the ocean, 
just in general, the ice crystals structure and stuff. Maybe we'll get to see some hot spots, areas where the warmer ocean is kind of thermally peaking out from the really cold. I mean, it's it's at five times the distance of the sun from the earth. So like the surface is, is at 80 Kelvin, which I really don't translate well into Fahrenheit, but it's really, really cold and well closer to liquid nitrogen temperature than dry ice temperature. Colder than any place humans would want to be without a really thick spacesuit. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So when you say organics, you're talking about like organic chemicals as opposed to like, yeah. you know, organic kale from Whole Foods, you know, like right. a specific class of chemical called organic chemicals. So things that like make up kale and other stuff, are made out of out of a series of elements like carbon, nitrogen, hydrogen, and those have very specific bonds. So, you know, you see the chemical formulas for sugar and stuff. And and those those molecules have what the instrument I'm using called CH stretches. That's the main one. There's a wavelength where everything that has a carbon hydrogen bond kind of vibrates. And if it's there and we look at the light reflecting, it looks darker than it would be otherwise. And that's, that's kind of how we're, we're doing. We're kind of looking for the colors, color fingerprints of organics. You know, it's a spectrometer. If you've ever seen a rainbow and you've seen how the light gets bent out into the different colors, that's basically a natural spectrometer. That's what Mize is doing. But at wavelengths that are more red than the eye can see. So we're out really past where the human eye can see. And just to be clear, there's a lot of different instruments on Europa, but I'm glad you brought up mice right away. Let's like stick to mice because we could spend like 10 (laughs) hours talking about all of them. You know, there's cameras, there's a radar that's going to look for water in the crust. There's a couple instruments that actually, as we fly through Europa, it has a radiation dust cloud. So you get materials from the surface and they're going to measure the chemistry that so it's it's a really multi-pronged approach just because it's such a difficult problem and life and habitability is is a hard thing to answer just because (laughs) (laughs) there's a lot of organics and stuff that's not due to life or habitability so you really want to have lots of different lines of evidence to really answer questions definitively I am glad we're talking about mice today, though, because this spectrometer is such an interesting thing, because as you described, it can get you composition. So the kind of end result is going to be a map of the surface of Europa, and that map will tell us where different types of things are. And that's just so powerful to interpret as scientists. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It really kind of gets you at looking at what things are made out of on the scale of the geologic processes that are happening. Having context for stuff always helps you understand things better. And when you're looking at things and things are not really spatially resolved well, everything kind of gets really blurred out. I mean, take a patch of beach sand, and if you're looking at the beach sand, from a distance, it all looks like one color, but you get up close and you see it's made out of a lot of different kinds of materials and stuff. And that's that's kind of what we're we're trying to do is is start looking at what the individual 
components are, where they're located, you know. Yeah, and it, it just it's such a wealth of information. I know that MISE recently underwent some testing. Can you tell us, like, what is the testing process? How can you possibly prepare to, like, send this little instrument onto a giant rocket and then all the way to Jupiter and then trust that it'll work? (laughs) (laughs) Well, the, the testing starts going way, way back to when you, like, actually start designing and building. And you, we actually tested all sorts of individual piece parts in the the instrument. And and for Europa, there are kind of three or four areas that we really worry about a lot. One is it's in a really high radiation environment. So we actually had to like take a lot of the, the pieces that went into building to mines and take them to things like synchrotron radiation accelerators and expose them to radiation and really see how much basically hunks of metal we have to put around them to protect them and keep them from breaking down in the radiation environment. Then the other thing that we do with the MISE instrument, work what's called a cryogenic instrument, we have a, our infrared focal plane array. Basically, it's the same thing that your camera chip does, but ours operates at liquid nitrogen temperature. And so we have to make sure that everything works for it being cryogenic and cold and that everything can cycle back and forth between those really cold temperatures and the surface. Probably we did seven what we call thermal vacuum tests. Thermal vacuum tests are basically we put the instrument into this big vacuum chamber, pump it down, flood the shrouds with liquid nitrogen. We even use liquid helium to cool the detector past that and tested things out in the real cold environment. And so, you know, you would go, we would go in, cool everything down, take some measurements, figure out how we have to adjust all the optics to make sure everything is in focus. And we did that about seven times over almost a two-year period. And so it was like almost every other month we were in these tests where they last about a month and we've got everybody working 24-7. So you've got people there around the clock. And it always turned out that we we were having tests over if it was a holiday weekend, we would be we were going to be in a test. So then once we got the instrument all put together and working optically, we started the rest of our testing program. That included things like something called EMI EMC, electromagnetic inductance and conductance. Basically, if you've ever had a phone or or something and you walk really close to some kind of electrical equipment and you started getting fuzzy, bad noises on it, that's an EMI, EMC issue. So it's basically making sure that the the electronic signals from your instrument and, and detectors and stuff are not getting out or getting in. And for Europa Clipper, it's a really challenging thing because right on the solar arrays, which are next to all the instruments and stuff, there's a big radar that's like bounding signals (laughs) down at Europa. And so, you know, 
you don't want the radar data to mess up your instrument, but you also don't want your instrument to cause noise on the radar data. And so we've spent a lot of time working on getting everything quiet in that way. I mean, we we wrapped cables with extra pieces of metal. We put some resistors in so that some clocks didn't make noise. And, and we were looking at really, really, really small signals. And so that, that kind of got us there. Other environmental tests is, you know, we do launch on a big rocket. And the rocket really shakes a lot. And so you want to make sure that nothing falls apart when the rocket goes off. And so as a consequence, you take your instrument or thing and you put it on something they call a shaker table and it shakes it and then it changes to a different axis and shakes it again and changes to a third axis and shakes it again. And so basically you shake the instrument harder than it will be on the rocket so you know it won't break on the rocket. We also test for contamination control. I mentioned that some of the instruments were looking at stuff from Europa. That's a very low signal, so they have to make sure that you're not outgassing like paint does or things like that that could cause a false positive. And I think that's kind of the end of testing on the instrument. So we actually delivered the whole thing to the spacecraft in July and got bolted on. And we all work and stuff. But now that we're on the spacecraft, that entire testing thing starts again with everything on the spacecraft. So they're not just testing to see if Mize breaks, but if everything put together breaks. That must be so cool to see your instrument bolted on. Yeah. What a day. Yeah, Yeah, it really was. You know, JPL has this live feed of them putting the spacecraft together that you can like look at at any time. And so basically, while the people putting the instrument on were down on the floor in their bunny suits and stuff, a large part of the mice team was up at that in the viewing gallery where that camera is watching them them do it. And they finished bolting it on at 11 o'clock at on a Friday night, and we still had about 20 people up there. <laughs> Is that something anyone can watch online? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a public web link. It's, it's going on pretty much all the time. Oh, that's it's so cool. It's a YouTube channel. Yeah. I'll, I'll find it and post a link on the website. I have that YouTube channel kind of up on my, there's no sound, so I kind of have it up on my TV as a screen saver and kind of just like look every once in a while to see what's happened. (laughs) There's something really interesting about that testing process where you have all of these kind of huge challenges of like the extreme cold, the extreme radiation, you know, all of this shaking. You have to be so sensitive to the other electronic equipment and even things like, you know, paint you know, like maybe like losing a few molecules. And it's interesting that the way it can be done is that, you know, you break it down into these different parts, right? You don't need to design like one perfect test chamber that makes it cold and shakes it and has radiation, right? You do the radiation, then, you know, you take them into kind of tiny pieces. And then together, that gives you enough of information to make a successful instrument. A large part of the whole instrument building design process is making sure it's testable and things that you can't test when like, 
you know, there are things you can't test when everything's all together. So you have to test those apart and figuring out that flow. I mean, it's, it's, MISE has been a long process. We really got selected in 2016. So we've been working pretty much consistently on it since then. And one of the reasons this has taken such a long time is, you know, when you do first of a kind things, you don't have things on the shelf. So, you know, when we designed our optics, we then had to go and find people who could make them. And it took, it took generally took a couple years for the, the lenses and the mirrors and all that sort of thing to show up. The same thing with the focal plane array. It's a one of a kind custom thing that we had to specifically have designed. Even things like electronic parts, what you think of as resistors and stuff, because it's for space in the radiation environment, we have to use things that are called rad hard, which are things that kind of are built for military use and or in deep space. And those parts also tend to have like a year or two lead time. Yeah, they're not selling a million of them, right? <laughs> they really make them in small batches just for you. It's very like artisanal, like. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And you have to buy enough extra that because this is what's called a flagship mission. So it's the highest quality mission that NASA science does. So we have what's called a parts qualification. You know, it's a long mission. We, we're going to, we're launching in October of 2024 and we're not really going to start doing science until 2030. So you think about how long your electronics sit around and stuff. So you have to do a lot of testing at the individual part level before you, that you can get those parts to be approved to put in. So it's, it's, a, it's a really long process. I'd love to talk a little bit more about the experience of testing. And so the first one you mentioned was going to the synchrotron. And that's actually something I've done, but it's it's a weird thing. So... Did you actually like take the parts, the individual parts before they're assembled, like get on a plane, somebody with a suitcase, then you fly to one of these big labs that there's a couple in the nation. And it's like these, these huge campuses, like the size of college campuses with just these it's just <laughs> particles spinning around in a circle with huge <laughs> magnets. And it's just like a ton of radiation. It's like a weird place. And there's these little like bays where different scientists are doing all types of experiments. Can you just talk about like how that particular thing went or what that, that experience yeah, was that like? Yeah, went, that, went, that went actually really well. I mean, we had, fortunately we had someone who was really experienced doing that, who kind of led that out. We were doing an experiment where the detector, which is kind of the heart of the instrument, we didn't know how much radiation noise we could handle before it became like white noise and all you saw is noise and you didn't see any signal. So we put together a, a liquid nitrogen doer that had a focal plane in, and then we had different levels of thickness of shielding material that we put in front of it. And then we- So it was actually cold during the test? Sorry for interrupting. It was actually cold and running during the test. Whoa. And so basically, <laughs> yeah, so basically we were taking data 
and then using that to develop a model based on the energy densities of the particles that were hitting and how it interacted with the, the metal shielding we had to how much shielding we needed to have around it. And the instrument is actually, the spectrometer part of the instrument where the detector lives is the size of a Diet Coke can or about. <laughs> But we, we basically put a, a, a have close to 10 millimeters of tantalum, which is, a, is really dense stuff. So there's like 20 kilograms of metal surrounding that Diet Coke cam to keep the radiation out. Wow. And what is that metal? I don't know if I've even heard of that. It's called tantalum. Tantalum? Am I ignorant of my periodic table? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's like buried down there. <laughs> yeah, it's it's way buried down to get a, a block big enough to like carve all the pieces of the shield out. It took us about eight months for it to show up. Not a lot of people besides Europa Clipper who are buying lots of tantalum. Yeah, and who even knows how to machine tantalum, right? Like <laughs> if yeah. it's aluminum or lead, people are used to working with it. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's really interesting. And I'm sure you don't want extra tantalum because... Probably it's not cheap, and also it's probably heavy, and you don't want to add extra weight. So you just wanted the right amount of shielding. Yes. And also you didn't want to have it because you have a kind of a complicated optical design. So you also had to, like, make sure that that you could fit all the other optical pieces and still get the light through the instrument. Because, you know, if you just put it in a block, so there were weird cutouts and then back shields and yeah oh my gosh i have so many questions i also (laughs) i would assume that some of the the further testing took place in a clean room could you describe am i right and could you describe what like working in a clean room is like because i think clean rooms are really fun yeah so so pretty much all of mine took place in a clean room there's two reasons for having clean rooms for spacecrafts one is planetary protection, tr- not bringing organics and stuff with you if you're trying to measure organics where you're going. And then the other is what's called c- contamination control, just keeping everything clean, don't getting dust and eyelashes on things or messing your optics up with fingerprints or dust settling out. And so they have these special rooms called clean rooms. and the the qual there's all sorts of different qualities and what what you do is you basically control the airflow so the airflow is laminar so that that stuff is basically kept from circulating in the air like you know you've seen dust clouds and sunbeams and things like that so getting all the particles you can out when people are doing work the main source of particles are people. People are really dirty. We've got a lot of like skin flakes and eyelashes and hairs and, you know, people can't wear perfume. They have special hand lotions you have to use. And so first thing you do is you clean your shoes and then you start suiting up when these special gowns that cover your shoes your whole clothes goes under a, a, what they call a bunny suit. You've got stuff over your hair. With, your hair goes into a cap. You've got a neck thing. If you've got a beard, they have beard uh, beard 
guards that will go around your beard and masks and gloves and sometimes double gloved. And so you're doing all of that in this super clean room. And we typically limit how many people can go into a room at a time. Sometimes it's three, sometimes it's five. It depends on how big the room is. So, so you really try to limit how many people are there. The rooms are also really temperature and humidity controlled because you don't want to have what's called electrostatic shock, which is basically static electricity, which can zap electronics. So you also, in addition to all your clean room stuff, you wear, you wear straps that keep you grounded at all times. And it's really hard. It's a hard thing to work in. I mean, generally, we typically do three to four hour shifts maximum in the clean room before people get an hour break. You know, you're working on multi-million dollar hardware. You really don't want anyone feeling tired or, you know, it's a little, can be a little claustrophobic in, in there. Sometimes the, the working space is tight in terms of really fine hand things. I personally don't get to touch anything on the instrument myself. I was going to ask that. Yeah, no. We have a cadre of what we call flight techs who basically have such superb eye-hand coordination, you know, control of their movements, able to just kind of go in and do these really fine, delicate work. And, And people are very specialized. There are flight techs who are do optics and there are flight techs who who work in cables and route the cables and their flight techs who like we have something we call um, that look like mylar blankets that build and put the mylar blankets on things and flight techs who you know things are heavy so we have these big cranes and they're basically people who know how to do these lifts and stuff and so you know, we really work hard to make sure that that the people who are doing the hands-on work can do their job. And this is the part of the MISE team that was, was at JPL during COVID and kind of working from the facilities and stuff. You know, people like me, who's a scientist and, you know, I didn't need to physically be there, but those people did. Was there any challenges due to COVID? I mean, I'm sure there were. There were for everybody and everything. But I mean, like, you know, is that how you guys kind of adapted? The scientists went remotely, and then there was probably some protocol for the people who had to be there, maybe one by one? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It it was protocol. I mean, it helps for the clean room stuff because everyone is masked in the buddy suit, and there's such good air circulation. But, yeah, that was a big thing. You know, the other thing is it wasn't just us. It was everybody. So all of our suppliers were having problems getting stuff to us on time. And, you know, there's a lot of personal communication that you you miss. Like, you know, each piece or part that when the instrument was going together had – an engineer who basically that was their baby that they designed and kind of knew it from things. And so they were having to frequently direct the technical things remotely and write things down. And 
you know, it, it's, it's, it slows things down if you don't have the person right there is that when someone has a question, they can answer it right away. But, you know, it, we got it done. Yeah. And, you know, it's so complex, right? I think listeners maybe have an appreciation now for how complex one instrument testing is. And now you can think of a bunch of instruments also on the spacecraft. And all of those instruments have to be bolted on at the same time. It's really something that it all comes together. Yeah. yeah. What's your biggest joy about this type of work? I like figuring out what I as a scientist want to know and discover and then how to work with the engineers to make it possible. I started working on this instrument in 2008 with a small group of engineers and we put together design, wrote the proposal and stuff. But it's, it, to me, it's like, it's a legacy that the work that we do have been doing probably for the last 20 years will end up making these new discoveries that it's not just me that will be looking at the data. It's people who are still in school right now. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a human legacy type of thing. And that's, that's to me is the most satisfying part that I've managed to do this, not just because I want to know about what's in Europa, but it'll let other people know about what's in Europa. And, and that's the, that's to me the most satisfying. And I like living at the intersection of science and engineering, translating between the two and trying to figure out what the best science is possible with the current technology. What a, a great way to spend your time, although I'm sure it's not always easy. <laughs> So thank you so much, Dr. Blaney, for being on the show. And now that we've heard all about the Mize instrument on Europa Clipper, we get to hear a fun fact about Diana. Yes. So my fun fact is that I like to boogie board. I love boogie boarding. (laughs) Yeah, I don't have the eye-hand coordination for surfing, but I really like to go to, and, and the upper body strength, but I really like to go boogie boarding and kind of like, ride the, the waves, you know, they have to be kind of the right size, not too big, not too little, but yeah. That's a great fact. I also think boogie boarding is totally underrated. It's fun. It's easy. You don't have to like get a bunch of gear. Yeah. Not a lot of boogie boarding here in the lakes of Massachusetts. <laughs> so I haven't been in a while. <laughs> I started when I was in grad school in Hawaii and going to the beach is my special relaxing place. Well, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing that. And thanks for being on the show. This was great. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Intro music is from The Return by Deltron3030. Huge thanks to Deltron3030 for letting me use it. The beeps you just heard are from the very first space probe, Sputnik. You can visit us at listentospacepod.com. The views expressed here do not reflect the views of my employer or the employer of my guest. Thanks for listening.